Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Today's episode is a little bit late, I'm afraid, for a couple of reasons. I need to make it clear that I'm lucky to still be working full-time and that my wife works at the hospital on the front line. My children are now in the 2020 lockdown with us as coronavirus continues to rage. As a result, I actually have far less time in lockdown than most people seem to. In fact, I'm busier than I've ever been. I'm not for one minute complaining. I'm privileged to live in Basingstoke and to have a healthy family and a good job. But I do need listeners to understand that I'm much shorter on time than ever before. The second reason is because this show is one of those that really started out as something else. It was going to be a quick show on cholera. Give you a sort of Victorian counterpoint to the coronavirus. Something brief and breezy. Then I started the research. And believe me, there's a huge amount of material. I wasn't planning on this as a topic per se. So I didn't have as much research time as normal. Then things sort of changed as I went through the prep for the show. I realised that this story was actually one of our historical earthquakes. And it needed to be told in our series. It has turned into a proper belter of a show. Some of the material is upsetting. So be aware, perhaps some listener discretion is advised. Disease is a huge engine of change and it tests the societies it hits. The Victorians, especially in the various cholera epidemics, were going to cross the line into something we recognise as modern medicine. Before we start, I'd like to say a huge thank you to long-time listener, patron, and all-round good bloke Rob C. from Australia. He has increased his level of patronage from Toff to trusted servant, the top tier of patron. That means there are now two top tier patrons, both of whom will be getting a poetry show of their choice. Should be exciting. Also, a huge thank you to Jonathan C., who has made a kind donation on PayPal. Glad you are enjoying the show. I think you also left me a review on Facebook, saying, quote, Fantastic. Five out of five stars. I prefer reading over podcasts and videos, but I was having anxiety at work and discovered this show. The host's mellow voice has been an excellent antidote. The first episodes are a bit slow but the series finds its stride with the Mount Tambora arc. The host has a talent for describing human suffering with poignant clarity, simultaneously focusing on individuals whilst contextualising the period's innate harshness. Although the minisodes initially lacked substance, they became my favourite segments following the Matchstick Girls episode. I can't say I ever gave much thought to the history of fish and chips, but the host can find the intriguing in the mundane. 
I have one minor criticism. Most episodes have at least one glitch of sentence repetition or throat clearing. This has been an excellent resource on social history for my fiction writing. I look forward to following the Victorians for years to come. End quote. Thank you so much. And, yes, I promise, the Victorians have got years of shows ahead of them. From the everyday to the extraordinary. And I've also had a lovely five-star review on iTunes from Janoka, who says, quote, Love learning about the history and just very relaxing to listen to. End quote. Thank you. Much appreciated. I'd also like to thank Bradley for the chats on Twitter and his kind recommendation of my episode on A Christmas Carol. The choice for today's episode has been made by current events. If you are listening to this in 2020, you are hearing the show during the coronavirus outbreak. Today, I'm going to take you back to learn about what was called the Great Victorian Plague, cholera. You might find this depressing and in places bleak, but you might find it strangely comforting as you see the patterns from history echoing today. Just a quick reminder on terminology. The 19th century runs from 1800 to 1900. The Hanoverian Age ran from 1714 to 1837. It officially finishes when Victoria became Queen in 1837. As you know, the Age of Victoria podcast started with the run-up to Waterloo in 1815, and Victoria herself was born in 1819. So some of the things we talk about are strictly speaking tail-end Hanoverian, even though most occurred in Victoria's lifetime. I'm reminding you of this, as the first and second cholera pandemics we will talk about today fall into the Hanoverian period with the famous third outbreak in the Victorian period in 1847 to 1860. This gives us an interesting contrast to how the Hanoverians of Victoria's youth and the Victorians of her reign dealt with the same deadly disease. And for the Victorians, this would be one of the great terrors of their age. A slap in the face from an almost forgotten medieval past, brutally reminding them that progress on railways and so much else was insignificant next to the power of disease and death. It formed a part of the investigations of disease and mass improvements in public health, teaching lessons we still seem to be relearning today. It also had profound influence on art, culture and religion. Cholera has existed for thousands of years and has probably been misdiagnosed for much of that time as medicine was steeped in religion and superstition. Things really began to change in the early 19th century. The first pandemic from 1817 to 1821 of what was known as Asiatic cholera, began in Jessore, near Calcutta, then appeared throughout India, before spreading into the Far East and other regions of the world, and then into the Middle East, including Muscat, Tehran and Baghdad. Sadly, there have been 
seven great cholera outbreaks in history. And it remains a killer today, albeit much easier to control and treat. I'm going to use the modern terms epidemic and pandemic. An epidemic is the rapid spread of a disease across a particular region or regions. A pandemic is a global outbreak of a disease. And usually the starting point of a pandemic is an epidemic. For once, I'm not going to start off with the clear definitions and mechanisms that we would understand from today. So I'm not going to talk about what cholera is, how it is defined, how it is detected, treated and so on at the beginning. Because the Victorians didn't know any of this. Some of the things they did in response to this disease will look a little strange to us. But we understand germ theory. We understand what cholera is and how it is transmitted. And if I set that out here, you will almost have too much of the benefit of hindsight. So I'm going to start you off with very little information, just like the Hanoverians and the Victorians had, then we can follow their journey as they battle both the disease and their own ignorance. This was a horror story for the Victorians because cholera kept coming back. There was more than one pandemic. While statistically speaking, it wasn't the most deadly disease, it still killed over 120,000 people in the UK during the four major outbreaks in the 19th century. That's a lot of deaths in peacetime, and it was highly noticeable. More than many other diseases of the period, this was a disease whose symptoms stood out. But even with distinctive symptoms, the disease varied from strain to strain and from individual to individual. And one note of caution around statistics. Some people can have a disease and not have any symptoms. They are asymptomatic and still spread the disease even though they feel fine. Others have minor symptoms and can get misdiagnosed. It can be maddeningly frustrating for a general practice doctor, for example, when a patient presents with coughing, a slightly raised temperature and a headache. Those symptoms describe an awful lot of conditions. Victorian doctors were well aware that some people got a disease but only had minor symptoms and recovered quickly, or others who initially seemed fit and healthy suddenly got a serious case and died. It was baffling for them. Statistics might tell you how many people have been identified and recorded as having a disease, how many people have been recorded as having died from it, but there will be a lag in collecting them. Some will get missed. You also need to be very careful about comparing like for like with statistics. Don't assume statistics show you X cases in this city why cases in that city, so therefore you know which city is better at dealing with an outbreak. You have to account for a lot of other factors. 
In the case of cholera, the initial symptom was diarrhoea and vomiting. There were a lot of things in the early 19th century and the Victorian era that could cause diarrhoea and vomiting. At the time of the second great cholera pandemic, at least one doctor wrote to the Lancet magazine, stating the whole thing was a hoax. Some doctors attacked magistrates, who raised the possibility of public health measures, stating that fears of an epidemic were being raised by other doctors to drum up medical business. There was a key problem that the Victorians were dimly aware of, which is that cholera has existed in many countries throughout history, including in England, in a more mild form. The disease had a variant in India that was particularly striking. It produced a characteristic blue colouring to the victim's skin. It was known as the Asiatic cholera strain. It had rumbled on in India for thousands of years, occasionally with greater spread and virulence, but it was essentially confined to the Indian subcontinent. Our old podcast friends, the eruption of Mount Tambora and the year without summer of 1816, seem to have changed that. Remember all the way back to episodes 13, 14 and 15? All that enormous climate disruption from Mount Tambora erupting caused food supply issues, and it seems much of the desperately needed rice was contaminated with water containing cholera, as weather patterns were disrupted by the fallout from the eruption. This was enough of a crisis. On top of that, there was a great Hindu festival of Kamba Mali at Jasor, near what was called Calcutta, in 1815. The mass gathering of pilgrims then spread out, returning home, and helping spread the disease. On top of this, British rulers in some areas were conducting mass irrigation works to improve farming, which stirred up soil and river sediments, all of which could harbour the deadly cholera. The conditions for a mass epidemic were in place. Imperial and native Indian trade routes both gave ways for the disease to spread. By 1820, it had reached Nepal, Surat, Bombay and China. This was the first great cholera pandemic. A cold winter in 1823 stopped it spreading beyond the Caspian Sea. But by 1826, the invisible enemy was on the march. In 1826, the second great cholera pandemic began in Bengal, which reached Afghanistan and Persia. By 1829, the great caravan routes of the Silk Road spread it to Russia. It was briefly slowed by the Russian winter. Then it moved inexorably into Eastern Europe, Austria, the German states, North Africa, France, and inevitably towards Britain. This was going to be a shock to Europe, on a level it could barely dream of. Remember how awful the year without summer was for them? Well, this was going to be another of those brutal right hooks across the jaw. In Russia alone, 
there are an estimated 250,000 cases of cholera, with 100,000 deaths, just in Russia, in this second pandemic. Overall figures may never be accurately known. Probably a huge number of people died and never got counted in the official figures, especially in the rural areas outside Europe's main cities. Crucially, much of city life in Europe remained filthy, with poor sanitation, no urban planning, gross inequalities of wealth and income, and primitive corpse disposal. Asiatic cholera can be an incredibly nasty disease. It spreads quickly, and in some places, fatality rates could reach 60 to 70 percent. Berlin, in 1832, had a population of 230,000. It had 2,193 cases of cholera. 1,384 of those died. That's a fatality rate of around 63%. So if you got it, you had a less than 50-50 chance. You wouldn't bet your house or your life on a straight 50-50 coin flip. Remember, those were additional deaths. Not, instead of dying from X, you die from cholera. You should always remember in a pandemic not to compare the deaths to other risks and say, well, you have a worse chance of dying from smoking, so this isn't so bad. It assumes you were likely to decide to smoke in the first place. It is a false comparison. You can only do it at individual level if you know that particular individuals are the risk factors. Humans in general are appalling at estimating risks. That's why so many people fear being murdered yet are blithely oblivious to the dangers of not maintaining an adequate stopping distance when driving at high speeds. But with cholera, it was obvious that this was deadly. Imagine hearing the news, this fearsome plague spreading, coming towards your town or your country. It must have captured the attention. Cholera is a fast and nasty killer. In the 1830s, there was no germ theory. No one really knew how diseases spread or why. Many believed it was miasma, a foul air, or a corruption that people breathed and got sick from. This did tie into a lot of sanitary reform. After all, if you removed the stink, presumably, you removed the miasma. In the particular case of cholera, there was some surprising evidence for this. <coughs> In the case of cholera, there was some surprising evidence for this. We now know that cholera can flourish in some forms of algae. When algae is in bloom, it can cause a bluish mist to form over water. That sounds like a miasma, doesn't it? If you were a doctor and all the people getting sick worked or drank from a river with this blue haze, perhaps you might think that the haze was what caused the sickness. From a modern view, we know the problem wasn't the smell from the foul water. 
It was the fact that the foul water was left in places that would lead to humans consuming it. Naturally, the medical establishment argued bitterly over the true cause. (coughs) Naturally, the medical establishment argued bitterly over the true causes. Was it a miasma? Was it caused by immoral behaviour and personal fill? One eminent physician was sure it was caused by poor diet and overindulgence, combined with changes in the weather. Others believed it to be a fungal infection from tainted food. You can see hints of future understanding there, but the crucial insights are missing. Inoculation for smallpox and then the smallpox vaccine had sparked new ideas about disease, that they were caused by something physical and small. This was a groundbreaking insight that disease had a physical cause and was treatable physically. The symptoms of cholera, the Asiatic strain, were pretty vivid and unmissable. I'm going to summarise pages 28 and 29 of Amanda Thomas's excellent book, Cholera, the Victorian Plague, here as she covers so well. The victim will initially suffer from severe diarrhoea. This will be like a cloudy rice water. It will contain intestinal matter, including cholera bacteria. This is crucial in spreading the disease. You can see how critical excellent sanitation is to stopping the transmission. That includes care in disposal of clothes or rags that come into contact with the disease. Once the initial diarrhoea is passed, the victim will perhaps think it a one-off nasty event, especially as it is initially often painless. They are quickly hit with extreme vomiting, which is described as truly agonising. During these incidents, cholera is blocking the absorption of water and fluids. The body is literally pumping out all of its fluids in an agonising process. The victim will be suffering extreme dehydration. They will suffer a thirst they can't quench, as fluid absorption is nearly impossible. Urination will cease, the skin will winkle and wither, whilst the blood thickens, causing a blue tinge to the skin. The victim will be near death, their pulse rate dropping as the heart struggles with the thick blood. Eventually most victims will then die of cardiac arrest. This could all happen in hours or a day. Today we know that the disease is transmitted through the water and can be transmitted in tiny, tiny amounts of it. A few drops of tainted water, perhaps as much as you would add to whiskey, is enough. Or even just failing to wash your hands after contact with contaminated clothes. 
If you are interested in this subject in more depth, by the way, I highly recommend Amanda's book. At least no one was resorting to horoscopes or an imbalance of the body's humours, as would have been the case until very near the 1800s. Still, if understanding of the disease, its cause and methods of transmission were weak, treatment was worse. Today, we have enormous faith in doctors and the incredible state structures that enable modern medical treatment. In the 1830s and 1840s, that was all absent. Doctors were not highly respected, and a big part of the reason was how ineffective they actually were. Many doctors, during the second pandemic, genuinely believed the cure for cholera was brandy. Others resorted to old favourites, like purging with laxatives, which was hardly what someone suffering from dehydration needed. By the summer of 1831, panic was beginning to grip the UK. Cholera was reported widely in India by the East India Company. News from Russia and Central Europe was terrifying. British people wanted to know if or when cholera would reach them, or if it could be stopped. Theoretically, this is not a crazy idea, as the UK is an island territory. It can potentially be shut off. That would require travel restrictions, including intense naval activity. The cost would be enormous. The impact on the trading economy almost incalculable, and restrictions on food and goods inevitable. There would also be the need for military rule, since quarantining a whole nation would be met with resistance by people who either opposed restrictions on their rights, on principle no matter what, or people who agreed restrictions in general were a good idea, just not for them at that particular moment. There were also the group of people always willing to break quarantines or oppose them to ensure they didn't lose money. In the end, it simply wasn't a serious option for the UK and wasn't much discussed. Responses to pandemics require community actions, yet paradoxically, the very freedoms of the democracies make their citizens less willing to act responsibly. Still, the late Hanoverians and early Victorians didn't have to deal with international flights or disruption to just-in-time supply chains. What they did have was a lot of travel by ship. Pre-industrial ships are ideal for carrying disease. The close contact of the sailors, the unsanitary conditions, plus the ever-present bilge water and water leaking in from the hull and the deck, was a perfect harbour for cholera. By October 1831, cholera reached Hamburg in Germany. It was so close to Britain now. Perhaps it had already arrived. People were already dying of the regular European cholera. Britain's weather that year was unusually close to India's. A long, hot summer 
followed by heavy, monsoon-like rains and thunderstorms, which were perfect conditions for the cholera germs to flourish. Everyone was anxious and on edge. Would the new plague sweep Britain? Tragically, the first victim in the UK was a 12-year-old child named Isabella Hazard. She lived in Sunderland in the pub owned by her parents. It was in a dank, polluted and poor part of the city. She fell ill on Monday, 17th October, 1831. The next day, she died in agony. The doctor who treated her recalled the horror. He said, quote, Excessive vomiting and purging of a watery fluid, attended with great protestation of strength, an unquenchable thirst, eyes sunken in their sockets, features much altered, a deadly coldness over the surface of the body, with spasms in the lower extremities, the skin remarkably blue, so much so that the mother inquired what made the child so black, as she termed it. Pulse, imperceptible, tongue moist, but chilled, with a total suppression of urine, was in perfect health when she went to bed, and attended church twice that day. She took ill at midnight that night, and was dead by the next afternoon. End quote. That's a hammer blow to a parent. A child who gets sick so quickly, and then dies. Imagine the panic they must have felt in the middle of the night. Little to no hope. No knowledge of medicine or the causes. They got her a doctor, who gave her brandy, mustard, various solutions of chemicals and other things. But no help. She was at church the previous day, seemingly godly and young enough to be pure from real sin. Yet she died horrifically, despite everything. What a shock to the religious worldview of the parents. It is almost certain that the parents hadn't even heard the name cholera. Death and disease were still not understood very well. In particular, the symptoms seemed to strip away the dignity of the victim as they fouled themselves in the street or in their beds. Communal cesspools were common, and the poor communities that the disease seemed to attack were tight-knit in many ways, with families forced to meet and help each other, only to find the sickness dogging them. With a few spare clothes or changes of bedding, the stench of the sick and the dying must have been horrific in the closed rooms and alleys. If you had young children, you had to change nappies, and they weren't disposable, but they were breeding grinds for cholera in themselves. But would you really abandon your child, a two-year-old, if your household got cholera? And worse, what happened to the children alone in those households when the parents died, when they were too young to fend for themselves? Imagine the tension that built as the new plague spread not knowing what it was, not having a cure, not knowing when it would end, 
No news broadcasts or well-supplied hospitals to fall back on either. Human helplessness was writ large. With grim inevitability, a man called Stoat, who drank at the pub, got sick and died. Then the man's son. Then the granddaughter. Then the nurse that was treating him. More cases followed. There was suspicion that a local regiment, recently returned from India, had brought the disease with them. And some of them did drink at Isabella's pub. But as speculation, it could have arrived by a lot of different routes. By November 1831, even the Times newspaper was reporting the deaths in Sunderland. The city leaders soon certified there was an outbreak of the dreaded cholera of the Asiatic variety. Britain would not be spared. After a delay of two weeks from the deaths of poor Isabella and the others, Sunderland decided to impose a quarantine. It was too little, too late, and was ignored. The critical lesson of pandemics in history is that harsh measures are needed early, before they seem necessary. Because by the time they are obviously necessary, it is already too late. And once in place, they must go on longer than you think is necessary. It is a classic case of go early and go big, or go home. Experience at the end of the Spanish flu epidemic, 1918, is typical of the problem. To quote from a CNN article, quote, During the Spanish flu pandemic, people stopped distancing too early, leading to a second wave of infections that was deadlier than the first, epidemiologists say. The Oakland Municipal Auditorium in California was converted to a temporary hospital with volunteer nurses from the American Red Cross in 1918. In fact, one large gathering near the end of the first wave in 1918 helped fuel the second deadlier wave. In San Francisco, when the number of Spanish flu cases was down to almost zero, the city fathers said, let's open up the city, let's have a great parade downtown, we'll all take off our masks together. Epidemiologist Dr Larry Brilliant said, two months later, because of that event, the great influenza, came back again roaring, end quote. But the Victorians were still going to have to learn these lessons through painful, deadly experience. The city of London was in a bind. The authorities knew that the city was a paradise for disease, but land traffic from Sunderland and other parts of the country was arriving daily. So what was the point of putting a quarantine on shipping? Also, they were terrified that a quarantine would have a negative impact on the economy. They did agree to clearing ditches and alleys of standing water and rubbish, which were at least useful in fighting cholera, even if they didn't know it. If the city did manage to completely quarantine, food would become a problem and so would the difficulty of getting out of the situation again, without causing a second pandemic wave. There was also the thorny problem of, of transmission periods. 
how long was it between becoming infected and showing symptoms? Some doctors thought 14 days, others more, others less. But 14 days suggested isolation and quarantine measures at ports could stop the disease becoming established in Britain. This is where the confusion over transmission was so crucial. If the disease was caused by bad air, a miasma, then it stood to reason it could be a more localised problem and it was not highly contagious. That's a very unfortunate view since cholera is really, really easy to transmit via contaminated water. Even so, concern was great enough for even the normally glacially slow British government to move quickly. It established a consultative board of health, soon replaced in November 1831 by a central board of health. The government seemed barely aware that it was acting too late. Death was about to sweep the land. How societies responded to disease in the early 19th century was typically bound up with political thought and views on religion. In the 1830s, a lot of French royal Carlists believed the disease was following the roots of political rebellion as political liberals rioted in various countries, lost and then fled to France. This tied the disease to liberalism and to the foreigner, both perennial hate figures of the early 19th century conservative establishments. The Catholic Church in France viewed it as France's punishment for the revolution and failing to uphold the true faith. In Britain, the issue was seen in more class-based terms. Many of the rich felt cholera could trigger a revolution or that it was a result of industrialisation weakening the old class structures or that the lower classes were inherently more immoral and therefore diseased. Debates even raged in America, where godly East Coast churchgoers struggled to see why God would visit a plague on the pious. They viewed poverty as caused by fecklessness and idleness, which chimed with much British thinking of the period, and was considered God-ordained. This was stronger than a lot of British people might have put it, although the class system was seen as divinely ordered. Still, some American radicals shockingly argued that poverty wasn't caused by godly ordained justice, but rather by structural factors in society that were profoundly human. George Henry Evans went so far as to argue that poverty was caused by low wages and that disease impacted the poor and immigrant communities more because of poverty than because of their moral worth or any fault of their own. One early case, probably amongst the first in the city of Liverpool, was almost certainly misdiagnosed. Dr Renwick noted the cause of death as common cholera, not epidemic or Asiatic cholera, and this was confirmed by an ex-military physician called Dr Parker. 
who had experience with cholera in India. He was quoted in the Liverpool Journal on the 5th of May 1832 saying, quote, The public mind may be easily excited and fear produced by the existence of a doubtful case. From the experience I have acquired of that disease during my residence in India, I am enabled to assure you and the inhabitants of this great emporium of commerce that this was not a case of the epidemic as prevailing in Dublin and Paris. End quote. Well, that's debatable considering events that were about to hit Liverpool. Today, we assume that doctors are trusted and respected scientists. But in the early 19th century, they often weren't. In Liverpool, there was deep suspicion of the medical profession. This is hardly surprising, since in Liverpool, there had been a scandal in 1826, when 33 corpses were illegally transported to Scotland for dissection by medical students, and the shipment was discovered. Then, another similar scandal with another local doctor. Some people in the city became convinced the medical profession would use the opportunity of the epidemic to kill cholera sufferers and then use them for medical dissection. It's not entirely crazy. After all, the infamous Messrs Burke and Hare had been on a killing spree around 16 people to get extra corpses to sell to medical schools. At that time, dissection of corpses was illegal unless they were condemned criminals. One of the mobs of rioters outside a hospital cried out, bring out your burkas, in reference to it. In the city, there was heated debate about how to manage the outbreak, who would lead the response, whether the dreaded Asiatic cholera had actually arrived or not. You might notice the key phrase in the quote from Dr. Parker, this great emporium of commerce. That highlights the importance of trade to Liverpool. It was one of the world's greatest trading cities. Irish migrants flooded the city looking for work. Ships and goods from all over the world went to and from Liverpool. From accounts at the time, it was clear that the outbreak of Asiatic cholera was known about from at least early May, and most likely before the 25th of April, as an inbound ship from Ireland had a cholera carrier. Yet on the 18th of May, 1832, the day after the Liverpool Board of Health accepted there was a cholera outbreak, the passenger ship Brutus was certified by that same board as fit and ready to sail from Liverpool to Quebec. And by that certification, it included that it was disease-free. Passengers aboard soon fell ill, and 81 died of cholera. Can you imagine how the passengers on that trip felt? It will be unsurprising to learn that the certification of ships was a lucrative business, and Liverpool was utterly dependent on the shipping economy and keeping it open. 
in today's language, they had to keep the economy open. The results were predictable. Liverpool was one of the worst hit cities in the first pandemic, suffering 4,977 cases and 1,523 deaths. That's a 31% mortality rate. But overall mortality rates for cholera can even get up to around 60-70%. Just as a contrast, the COVID outbreak we are suffering now appears to have a mortality rate of around 1-6%. Untreated TB, the other famous disease of the 19th century, hovers around 50% mortality. On the 19th of May, 1832, the Liverpool Board of Health finally caved pressure from the Collector of Customs and officially declared an outbreak, but downplayed the seriousness. Some furious local doctors wrote long condemnations of the board, which they felt had been appointed by the local mayor and magistrates based on patronage rather than expertise, and that the economy was being prioritised over people's health. On the ground, it was the poor who were being hit hardest by the pandemic. That shouldn't be surprising. It is easy to assume that we are all vulnerable to disease, and it is a great leveller. You might recall those pictures of dead kings and popes during the Black Death. Well, that's sort of true, but it is a partial picture. Yes, if you get sick, you are just a sick human, whether rich or poor. But you are far more likely to get sick from communicable diseases if you are poor, because you have to undertake activities that expose you to chances to get the disease a lot more than a rich person does. Then once you get sick as a poor person, you are likely living in situations that exacerbate the sickness, decrease your chances of getting good medical help, and which might actively harm you. So imagine two individuals in 1832 in Liverpool. One is a rich merchant who owns a shipping line. He lives outside the city, but travels in to do business in his office. He will have close contact, perhaps with a couple of clerks. His office will be clean, and probably not near sewage. When he drinks, he will probably have wine, small beer, or Madeira, or boiled water in tea. None of those will contain cholera. His exposure risk is therefore very low. At his country house, he is a long way from raw sewage from the contaminated dock areas and pubs. His main risk is one of his kitchen servants getting the disease and then contaminating his food. At least his clothes will be regularly washed in hot water, probably carried from boiling kettles. Again, this is not good for the cholera bacteria, which would be boiled and killed. The other individual is a 30-year-old dock worker. He carries goods from the holds of ships, lives in a dirty room in a shared house nearby. When it rains, 
which happens a lot in Liverpool. Perhaps the water from the cesspool he shares with 20 other people leaks into his cellar, then floods the property. He carries his drinking water from the local water pump, which is supplied from the same river that has the human waste flushed into it. You can immediately see that he is at vastly greater risk. He can't stop working and seal himself in his country estate, like the rich merchant can, to wake out the pandemic. He has to work every day, or he and his family will starve to death. Eventually, the mistrust of the medical establishment boiled over into riots, as Liverpudlians became convinced the doctors were going to burke them and sell the dead bodies for profit. This wasn't helped by the fact that a tabloid murder occurred in London, with copycat killers murdering an Italian boy and trying to sell his corpse in November 1831. One of the killers confessed to three other murders. In all, there were eight major riots in Liverpool over the issue, and cholera hospitals were attacked. One medical attendant was stoned for his alleged part in the conspiracy. In fairness, the riots in Liverpool were the worst riots, but they were far from the only ones. Edinburgh, Exeter and York all saw significant attacks on doctors. Many people thought the doctors had either invented the illness to cover up their plan to kill people so that they would have corpses for medical students to dissect, or were at least taking the opportunity to kill people and blame it on cholera. At the same time, the contentious anatomy bill was making its stormy way through Parliament and it would allow doctors to use paupers' corpses for dissection, heightening the atmosphere of mistrust. On top of this, it didn't help that some necessary measures, like burning contaminated clothes and bedding, or forced disinfection of rooms with vinegar, fell heavily on the poor, and often without compensation for losses. From a strictly medical point of view, Destroying contaminated cloth was vital for a disease as easily transmittable as cholera. The feeling was it was the poor who were suffering and dying and then being punished economically. Such feelings badly affected districts in Paris, probably helping to fuel revolutionary feeling in the July Revolution of 1832. Elsewhere in the USA, Doctors used the opportunity to experiment. One doctor concluded that cholera also caused nerve damage, lessening feeling in the limbs, so poured boiling water on the leg of a black slave suffering from cholera to test his theory. Can you imagine the agony of the poor man? All these issues seemed wrapped up together for some people much as people today seem to want to blame 5G in China for coronavirus. Eventually, the rioting in Liverpool died down as the authorities introduced regulations to allow regular visits to the sick by their relatives, sight of the corpse after death, 
and people to be present at burials. This was combined with a strong statement from the Catholic Church, aimed at the poor Irish population, to reinforce the message to trust the medical establishment. Still, as the Journal of the History of Medicine points out, in Britain these attacks were focused on the medical establishment, not the political elite, as was more commonly happening in Europe. There were around 30 anti-medical riots in total, which was a pretty large number for the UK. Even the poet Tennyson mentioned cholera in his letters in 1832, but felt that the reform bill was a greater concern, or at least he claimed to think so. The 1830s continued to be a dreadful time for Britain. As you know, the countryside was in uproar from poor harvests, job losses, and general economic blight. Politics was in turmoil due to the Catholic Emancipation Bill and the First Great Reform Act, as we covered before, and poor Victoria was still a child, suffering under her mother and the vicious Sir John Conroy. Imagine if Victoria had got cholera in 1832. It could have happened so easily. If she had died in this pandemic, consequences could have been enormous. No Victoria would have meant the hated Duke of Cumberland being king. He was a Hanoverian male, so the British crown would have retained Hanover on the continent. There would have been no Albert, and perhaps no pivot away from Europe to the wider world. Perhaps the Hanoverian king would have got British troops involved in wars with Prussia and Austria to expand his European territories. Victoria would have heard of the horrors of cholera as she grew up. She mentions it on the 16th of November 1836 in her diary, quote, There is another Neapolitan vessel in the harbour, and, as she has just come from Bella Napoli, where the cholera Unfortunately is at present, she is on quarantine and is placed in the middle of the harbour, end quote. It pops up a lot in her diaries. It is sometimes strange to read the casual rundown of deaths that she records. A person is just given a sentence in a diary and they are gone. Not just from cholera, from influenza, accidents, strokes, old age. Then suddenly in the next sentence, she's talking to a minister about imperial matters. As you read her diaries, you realise just how many friends or acquaintances she lost over her lifetime. Eventually the pandemic peaked and slowly trailed off. But now the disease was out there and with a vast reservoir of places to live, ready for future pandemics. If a disease has a natural reservoir, it is almost impossible to eradicate. It had been terrible, but was only just beginning. Still, the outbreak had some really important consequences. It laid the groundwork for future public health measures, for sanitary reform, and for the concept that governments had a duty to manage disease. Dr Robert Baker in Liverpool 
carefully mapped the instances of cholera, decisively showing they were mainly within poor areas. It was so convincing that the Liverpool Board of Health said, quote, We are of the opinion that the streets in which malignant cholera prevailed most severely were those in which the drainage was most imperfect, and that the state of the general health of the inhabitants would be greatly improved, and the probability of a future visitation from such malignant epidemics diminished by a general and efficient system of drainage, sewerage, and paving, and the enforcement of better regulations as to the cleanliness of the streets. End quote. Oh, and crucially, a man called Dr. Thomas Atchison Latter was spurred into action in 1832 to attempt to find a practical way to deliver fluids to the body in line with intravenous fluid theory. No one had managed this before. He did so successfully on five cholera patients. His work wasn't fully carried into practice for another 70 years, as the precise chemical combination needed was hard to figure out. But he had laid the foundations of one of the most important pieces of modern medicine. He wouldn't have done so without the cholera epidemic. Now, have a think about the infrastructure for dealing with this disease. In the 1830s to 1850s, public infrastructure was in its infancy. The big industrial cities of the early Victorian period were frankly unplanned, unhealthy and utterly filthy. Even though there were glimmers of understanding, big strides were still needed. In 1842, cholera returned with a vengeance. This was at the start of the Victorian era. The Hungry Forties, as they were called. As you heard on the railway shows, food was still sometimes scarce. The railways had gone through booms and busts, and Victoria herself was on the throne. The Victorians were now about to face the third great worldwide cholera pandemic, and it was going to be the most deadly wave of the disease. How they coped would set a model for public health care that was crucial for the rest of the 19th century up to today, and the lessons they learnt can still teach us. Mark Harrison reminds us in his excellent book, Diseases in the Modern World, 1500 to the present day, that even the definitions of filth, sanitation and cleanliness are culturally defined and vary from place to place. It is easy to say the London slums were filthy, but what did that mean in practice? Did the Victorian doctor, making a list of filthy slums, have the same definition we might? If not, would he class places as healthy which we would still identify as being at risk from cholera? The history of Victorian science is underneath it all the rise and triumph of systemized definitions and taxonomies, carefully putting labels in order, adding them to things, grouping them by category, and drawing statistical information. 
some of the work that they did in public health was remarkable just for the fact that they had ideas to classify things and carried out the laborious task of tabulation and then doing longhand statistical analysis using pen and paper. This third great cholera pandemic is probably the most famous. It raged from around 1847 to 1860, although remember those dates and somewhat imprecise, as there will have been cases bubbling away around the world in between. In Russia alone, it killed millions. It seems to have begun in France and soon spread. A famine-weakened island was hit by it, as were Mexico, the United States, especially California, Utah and Oregon. It also hit India and the Middle East. The Victorian response was far better than the response of just 15 to 20 years before. And it tells the tale of the triumphs of Chadwick, Dr. John Snow and the Soho Pump. It is worth remembering, though, that not everything was a part of the great Victorian triumph story, which is how it is framed in most documentaries. Victorian life still carried on despite the cholera outbreak. The future of empire in India hung in the balance in the Anglo-Sikh wars. Britain annexed Natal. Dr Livingston undertook his famous exploration of Africa. The railways continued their spread around the world. The late stages of the Industrial Revolution shook up industry, manufacturing, food production and people's social lives. People still committed crimes, lived, loved and died. Some Victorians did terrible things during the cholera outbreak that were less a tale of triumph and more a horror story. Those crowded slums and lodging houses hadn't gone away. People still scrabbled for a precarious life on the margins of poverty and death. Slums often still emptied privies and human waste directly into the very rivers that supplied the drinking water. Doss houses still provided sleeping rooms for up to 30 people with no ventilation or sanitation. City dwellers kept pigs in cellars or let animals roam the streets, leaving tons of animal waste on top of the mountains of manure produced by the horses. The urban population in the 1840s was skyrocketing, especially in London, but at least some tiny, though crucial steps had been taken. The start-up of the General Registry Office in 1836, meant for the first time there was a single national civil register, all births and deaths, replacing the chaotic parish and religious records of previous centuries. The Victorians began to look at the cholera problem as almost an engineering one. It stood to reason, surely, many argued, if the disease was prevalent in poor districts, as the statistics were showing, then the solution was to build away the problem. Slums could be cleared, 
in some cases to make way for railways. The old need to crowd into the city centre to do business was reduced as the rich and some middle classes could commute in from the healthier suburbs. Old medieval alleyways were abandoned for the very poor. Acts of Parliament required better drainage. In practice, the laws were patchy, enforcement almost non-existent, and the sewage from the new drains emptied directly into nearby rivers anyway. Still, Liverpool led the way. The proud and rich city pushed for a structured approach to sanitation. They got the Liverpool Sanitation Act passed in 1846. It made the town council responsible for drainage, street paving, sewage management, and also created an inspector of nuisances, a bar engineer, and a medical officer of health. As a first statement, was a sign of the new Victorian age. Just leaving things to sort themselves out was no longer going to be acceptable. As being rich didn't mean complete immunity to cholera, and even if it had, cholera was highly visible. It pervaded the culture and the art and the literature. Victorians up and down the social scale were intensely aware of it. The Victorians had an obsession with health, disease and cleanliness. As you look at how the various diseases ripped through their society, you can see why. That obsession with soap and water every day becomes entirely explainable. By the end of the period, perhaps some of their habits of personal grooming were a little bit better than ours. We've slacked off dangerously. Diseases seem to be almost a part of the physical environment as well as the mental one. Here's a passage from Dickens' Bleak House that shows the typical image of unhealthy places. Quote, A reeking little tunnel of a court gives access to the iron gate with every villainy of life in close action on death and every poisonous element of death in action close on life. Here they lower our dear brother down a foot or two. Here sow him in corruption, to be raised in corruption, an avenging ghost at many a sick bedside, a shameful testimony to future ages, how civilization and barbarism walked this boastful island together. Come night, come darkness, for you cannot come too soon or stay too long by such a place as this. Come, straggling lights, into the windows of ugly houses, and you who do iniquity therein, do it at least with this dread scene shut out. Come flame of gas, burning so sullenly above the iron gate on which the poisoned air deposits its witch ointment, slimy to the touch. End quote. Victoria, in her assiduously kept diaries, referred to cholera often. 
She also mentions a, quote, Another dull, damp day. We walked down to Frogmore to see Mama after breakfast and later rode out with the two equerries, I riding Hammond, who went very well indeed. In the afternoon we went down to the rockery with the three eldest children and Albert shot with his little pea rifle and revolving pistols at a target. Bertie had two most successful shots. Lord and Lady Ashley came for two nights and dined. Lord Ashley sitting next to me. He gave me a dreadful account of that mismanagement of the infant school at Tooting, where the cholera broke out. She said mercifully that the horrors committed there were not to be believed. 150 have died out of 1,300. It is dreadful to think of, end quote. Victoria is referring to one of the great scandals of the cholera outbreak. And frankly, one of the great scandals of the whole early Victorian period. Needless to say, if it stood out in the age of casual horror of the poor and was bad enough to raise a royal eyebrow, then you can tell it will have been pretty awful. I've mentioned some horrible people in this podcast. Sir John Conroy, Amelia Dyer, the Prince Regent, a.k.a. George IV, Sir Barton Frere, the murderer Charles Peace, all stood out in their own ways. Now, sadly, I have to introduce another truly awful human being, Bartholomew Peter Drowett and his loathsome family. If you are particularly sensitive, you might want to skip this section of the podcast, especially if you have small children. Victoria's comment about mismanagement barely covers it. It was so awful, in fact, that Dickens wrote four outraged journal articles for the Examiner and it made the Times newspaper. Jarrett took over the Tooting Infant Poor Asylum, which was supposed to provide care and education for pauper children, the local London parishes. It had started out as a private residential school, but when Drowett bought it in 1825, it was turned into a boarding school for the very poorest. It took boys and girls from birth to age 14, when they could leave and legally work. Some of these children were orphans. Others had parents in the workhouse. They were to be given a limited education then made to work outside education hours. It was cheaper for the local authorities to hand children over, people like Druitt, than pay to maintain them in the workhouses sometimes. Druitt planned to maximise his profit by getting as many children as possible. This let him charge the local parishes for their upkeep. Needless to say, he overcharged the government for costs and then underspent the funds to divert as much as possible to profit. By 1848, he had managed to cram the various school buildings with over 1,400 children, double the 700-odd he had started with when he bought the school. 
The girls were given writing and singing lessons. Then they used their needlework skills to make shirts, either for the school or for retail. The boys picked used ropes for the Navy or shipping companies. That was really horrid work. The accommodation was cramped, to say the very least, with one boy's room, a 52-foot by 21-foot, being crammed with 200 boys and three teachers. That's six foot of room per boy. One of the later inquests, it was found that beatings were common. Food was eaten standing up, and often consisted of rotten potatoes for the boys, and some boys were even recaptured after failed escape attempts. They were dressed as girls and ritually humiliated. Jarrett's brother was also accused by multiple girls of sexual assault. Given the time period, the lack of official oversight, absence of any disciplinary system, the family nepotism, the power over the victims, I think it is certain those claims of assault were true. Imagine those poor children, trapped in a hellhole, with dangerous, rotten food, preyed on by a paedophile, and forced to work to produce garments to earn their keep, and offset their cost to the taxpayers. Even the gruel was found to be a substandard mix of flour, arrowroot, salt and water, described by one inspector as little better than glue for sticking up adverts. To cut costs further, no winter clothes or heating was issued even when temperatures plunged. Even worse, 150 of the children were housed in an outhouse that was shared with pigs. All the children were helpless. I can't imagine how many of them suffered permanent mental trauma. If you recall my show on Dickens' A Christmas Carol, you can actually see why I said that Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim and family were far from the worst off in society. The children at Drowett's home would have killed to be part of Bob Cratchit's family, to have food at a table, even if it was meagre, to have a room of their own, and to have spare clothes. And you might notice some elements of this treatment of bear an uncomfortable resemblance to the modern private prison system, with inmates vulnerable to abuse, being forced to work to pay for their keep, and the company prison provider charging the government as much as it can, then providing as little as possible, so it can cream off the difference. Well, plus a change, as the French would shrug. By 1848, Drouet had already been told to improve things by various commissioners and inspectors, but little was really done to the school or the conditions. In January, 1849, though, the real disaster hit. Cholera. Despite his attempt to downplay things, Drowett couldn't hide the increasing flow of dead bodies. The school was soon visited by the parish of St Pancreas Guardians, who were responsible for oversight of the school and the spending. 
they were accompanied by several friendly doctors who declared Drowett was doing everything he could and since cholera was probably caused by atmospheric poison, it was hardly his fault. With this generous coat of whitewash applied, they all trundled off. Dr. R. Granger, though, an inspector for the recently created Board of Health, was not satisfied. He visited the school and was absolutely enraged. The board itself had little in the way of formal powers, and since regulation without sanction is often worthless, that could have been it. Granger wasn't prepared to let things slide, though. He wrote a bombshell of a report. One heartbreaking passage said, quote, I made a careful inspection of the various rooms, occupied as cholera wards, for the reception of the sick children. I first entered those on the female side. When I was first struck by a sense of the peculiar and sickening smell, familiar to all who are acquainted with close, unventilated and heated rooms, overcrowded with children, in a room 16 feet long, 12 feet wide and less than 8 feet high, there were 5 beds occupied by 11 children, all ill with cholera. In another room of the same dimensions, there were four beds with 13 cholera patients, of whom four were in one bed and three in each of the others. End quote. Let that sink in. Children, sick with cholera, were sharing beds. Cholera causes unrestrained diarrhoea, and the suffering of the sick children in urine and shit-filled beds must have been horrific. Imagine the stench and the pure fear. Can you begin to get your head round the terror? Imagine being seven or eight, desperately sick, lying in foulness, and then the child next to you dies? The disease you yourself has? The shock to society was palpable. Charitable patrons who supported the school were beyond enraged. A thousand children were removed and relocated, although some local poor boards still tried to keep children there to save costs to the local ratepayers. By now, things were no longer in the hands of the local parishes and boards and the governors. The coroner for Middlesex, an editor of the Lancet Medical Journal, Thomas Wakeley, began to set up inquests. The wheels of the law were slowly grinding into action. Witnesses gave damning testimony. Revelation after revelation piled on. Even some of the guardians overseeing the establishment began to testify they had noticed problems, probably hoping to save their own skins, just in case things didn't get properly covered up. It was soon established that the only outbreak of cholera in Tooting was actually at Drowitz, and he had failed to inform the authorities of the outbreak. Inspectors, overseers and governors fell over themselves to demonstrate legal immunity from liability, and preferably deny all knowledge of anything. At the final inquest, the coroner's jury 
returned a finding of manslaughter against Joet alone. Joet was now referred for criminal prosecution. He was granted bail on the grounds of ill health. The trial was a media sensation, of course. Curiously, the recorder of London, the senior judge at the Old Bailey for criminal trials, Charles Ewan Law, opened with a speech to the jury telling them they would have to disregard most of the coroner's inquest evidence, as it was hearsay. The case then passed to the judge presiding, Judge Mr. Baron Platt. Drowett himself was extremely well represented by the future Lord Chief Justice. It was almost as if the authorities didn't want too many rocks turned over. The press was baying for blood, and Drowett was now notorious enough even for the artist Whistler, to sketch him. The judge took every opportunity to exclude evidence against Drowett, and his defence counsel stuck doggedly to the position that manslaughter required an action from Drowett, not inaction or negligence. Previous poor conditions at the orphanage were ruled out of bounds by the judge when defence counsel objected, as general conditions were deemed not relevant unless they related to the death in question on the charge sheet. Even the children called as witnesses were cross-examined. One eight-year-old boy was put on the witness stand, gave stomach-turning testimony about the conditions, including saying, quote, There was a round wooden tub in the sleeping room for the boys, when they wanted to do their occasions. It was used by all the boys. There was only one tub in the attic where I slept. They used to dirty and piddle in it. We did not use the tub in the daytime. We went down into the yard then. In the morning, two of the big boys used to carry the tub down. End quote. By occasions, he means urinating and shitting. Imagine that shared by 40 to 200 boys during a cholera epidemic. Also, the yard, which did toilet duty during the day, was also where the inadequate water rations were doled out. The issue was, if things had been that bad for six years, then clearly they had no effect on the children's deaths, as far as the defence case went. Nor was contributing to cholera's spread enough. The judge told the prosecution they had to show that the children would not have died from cholera anyway, but for a positive action by diet. So, since the place was always polluted, and the children could have caught cholera from that regardless, and died, and no manslaughter. Tellingly, there was an exchange in court between the judge and a doctor called as witness. Quote, court. I believe it is well known that rapid atmospheric changes or vicissitudes, were predisposed to cholera. Rapid changes of the atmosphere from dry to wet and wet to dry. Doctor, it appears in some instances that it has had that effect, but it is not quite certain. I've read Mr James Ainsley's book. He shows that cholera sometimes follows rapid atmospheric changes, but he's not shown necessary connection. He has not shown them to be predisposing causes, because I have known instances 
in which it has had no effect upon disorders. End quote. This was quite a critical point, and frankly, not permitted introduction of evidence by the trial judge. A lot of the trial focused on the general conditions, the food, the beatings, and the air quality. Actually, the prosecution had the necessary evidence for the manslaughter offence. Based on the conditions of sewage disposal and putting sick children in beds together, if only they had known cholera was transmitted in sewage and contaminated water. To us, it is so screamingly obvious, but the prosecution didn't know it, so they were trying to show gross negligence from the general conditions, only for the judge to keep slapping them down. Even the various medical experts agreed that the children had been on weight and poorly fed, but when pushed could only say this made the children more vulnerable if they did catch it. The doctors simply couldn't tell what caused cholera, or how it was really transmitted. The judge adopted the defence position in his summing up. In fairness to the trial judge, involuntary manslaughter was a fiendishly tricky area in Victorian common law, but it was pretty clear to most that Jarrett was only saved by judicial intervention. The judge's summation, eloquently in line with the defence case, to quote the court record from the Old Bailey, quote, Sir Frederick Thessiger, with Mr Ballantyne, submitted that there was no case to go to the jury. It being clear that the death, being consequent of the visitation of cholera, was not directly or immediately caused by any neglect of duty on the part of Mr Drowett. Mr Chambers contended that there was evidence for the jury whether by the course of treatment pursued by Mr Drowett had so reduced and weakened the deceased as to render him less able to resist the attack of cholera. Mr Baron Platt, on that question, did not feel disposed to offer any opinion there was a part of the case which seemed to him to dispose of it altogether. The indictment charged that certain treatment was exhibited to the child by reason of which its death was caused. Now, it certainly was necessary on the part of the prosecution to give some evidence to show that the child could probably have resisted the disease that treatment had not been exhibited. No evidence had been adduced to show that the child might not have died of cholera if that treatment had not been exhibited. In the absence of such evidence, in his opinion, on a point of law, prisoner ought to be acquitted. End quote. By this point, Dickens was so outraged that his articles covering the trial were bordering on abusing sarcasm about the partiality of the judge to the defence. The Times newspaper was scathing. The jury duly returned a not guilty verdict as the judge had directed them to and they were required to do so in law. And the respectable Mr Drowett was free to go. He died quietly of an unrelated heart condition a few months later. One hopes he met with at least some kind of judgement in the hereafter having failed to receive it here. 
Disraeli mentioned him, in letters to people, as a curious talking point. Queen Victoria was most put out. The children were left to the tender care of the various parish boards. In a last irony, as in life, so in death, some of the dead children were packed four into a coffin to save money when the post-mortems were finished. Let's not sink into total horror, though. The Victorians, soon after, turned an enormous corner in the battle against cholera. Parliament was stirred into action to pass various acts to strengthen health inspections and boards. The recently passed Public Health Act of 1848 was strengthened with amendments in 1849. New burial acts were passed to allow councils to relieve pressure on overflowing graveyards, much to the relief of badly hit cities like Exeter. Individual cities, like Liverpool, were pushing for sanitary reform. Change was in the air. Dickens wasn't just criticising from the sidelines. He often gave speeches at hospitals to raise money and awareness as part of his charity work. Numerous reformers and campaigners waged war. Above all, though, came the triumph of the map. There's an incredible, carefully ink-drawn map from 1849 which shows the outbreak sites of cholera in England. They all have dense clusters around waterways. Easy enough for us to do, our age of computer-aided map-making. Months of hard work, though, with pens and manual tables of statistics. In 1848, as the scandal was about to break at Drowitz, the man who would make one of the most important discoveries in medical history, Dr John Snow, was reading a paper about cholera by surgeon Francis Hurd. It was a very clever paper. Snow decided it was completely wrong. Unusually, Snow was not only a medically trained doctor, both as a physician and surgeon, but a pioneer of anaesthesia and a highly competent midwife. What set him apart was his wide-ranging interest in chemistry, anatomy and physics, and his view they could be combined with medical observation to produce better results for patients. In 1849, he published the first of his papers on cholera. He emphatically rejected the atmosphere poison theory and concluded it was transmitted to humans in contaminated water and that it could move between individuals. He continued to work on the problem to try to develop a general theory supported by strong evidence. By 1851, he was presenting detailed papers that linked to the mortality statistics collected by William Farr at the General Records Office. The pieces seemed to be falling in place. Study of outbreaks showed them to be tightly linked to sewage-contaminated water sources. If cholera was caused by bad air in a miasma, It wouldn't stay as confined and travel with people moving out of the infected areas. In 1851, he was able to say infection was possible from close contact with cholera victims, including washing their garments, 
or from a contaminated water source like a well, or by general contamination of the municipal water supply. Suddenly, the Victorians had turned a disease from an affliction caused by God or bad air, or by living an immoral lifestyle, into a defined physical entity with a clear mechanism for transmission. You would assume something this groundbreaking would have created a bombshell in the medical establishment. That might be the popular myth of snow, but it didn't quite happen that way. The medical establishment wondered why someone who wasn't a senior member of a senior professional body was banging on about water transmission in hastily written papers with no direct evidence beyond mere statistics and observation. Preposterous, many of them chortled. Fate was to intervene with yet another cholera outbreak in London in 1854 as the third pandemic continued to rage. Improvements to sewage drainage were being forced on London, allowing snow to contrast improved water supply areas with unimproved ones and demonstrate the worst cholera statistics for the unimproved ones. Snow and a number of frankly heroic doctors and a local priest carefully went door to door, constructing a statistical analysis of cholera in the Broad Street area of Soho, which had been particularly hard hit. It would be one of the strongest pieces of evidence in his upcoming blockbuster of a paper. Broad Street contained a pump for water that was extremely popular. With his evidence, he showed that most of the victims had directly drawn water from the pump or were within walking distance of it. He began to trace the companies that used the water for products, then traced victims who had consumed those products before getting cholera. He also included the hard-hitting evidence that a workhouse in the worst-hit area and almost next to the pump had had almost no cases as it had its own separate water supply. He even included the almost slam-dunk case of a woman from Soho who had moved away to Hampstead, which was cholera-free. She missed the taste of good old London water so much that she had asked some to be sent by her family, which they regularly did. When cholera broke out in Soho, but not Hempstead, she should have been safe. Yet, tragically, she and her niece cracked open a bottle of that good old London water for that good old London taste on a Thursday night. They were both dead by Sunday. Snow took his evidence to the local authorities and demanded that the pump be shut down. They agreed. Death rates declined quickly afterwards. Needless to say, the medical community did not agree and arguments continued to rage after Snow's death. Like a prophet in his own land, Snow was not able to convince the sceptics. Other doctors, especially the top professional, Dr Edmund Parks, asked if he had properly accounted for ventilation, temperature, He had failed to consider other possible contributory factors. 
he had failed to be sufficiently sceptical. There was no consensus. The models were just models, etc., etc. Miasma and bad smell were still possible causes. A cartoon in Punch magazine savagely lampooned the living conditions in London in 1852, showing a crowded slum street filled with people, washing, cheap hostels for transients, beggars picking food from rubbish heaps atop which children play, and in the background, a coffin being carried. The work is entitled A Court for King Cholera. Ultimately, Snow's great discovery wasn't really the discovery of cholera's method of transmission. It was the dedicated application of statistics and geographical modelling of disease that really gave birth to modern public health medicine. Whether they accepted a waterborne cause or miasma, no, was actually sort of irrelevant for the Victorian city planners. Both needed the same solution. Better sanitation, toilets, proper drainage and water supplies. Other later doctors, coming after Snow, revisited his work with interest and newly improved microscopes. The war against the Great Plague would continue to be waged, but now people were on the right track, thanks to Snow. We will pick up this end of the great story as we continue our journey through the age of Victoria. For now, the Great Stink, Great Sewage Systems of London, and Snow's ultimate vindication by the great microbiologist Cock lay later in the Victorian age. But this is all in the past, surely. Now with our mastery of electricity, antibiotics, robotics, satellites and computers, plagues are a thing of the past. While certainly modern sanitation can drastically reduce the likelihood of a cholera pandemic, high-income countries that pay attention to water quality and sanitation can be almost immune to the disease. Even so, there are an estimated 3 to 5 million cases and 100 to 120,000 deaths annually, mostly in Africa. But sanitation can fail, even in rich nations, or be neglected utterly, like in Flint, Michigan. In our more global and connected world, failure of sanitation, like in Haiti, can lead to a worldwide response for help. Tragically, workers from Nepal travelled to Haiti and one brought cholera with him. It ravaged the country. Standing behind the worries about sanitation is one of the worst crises of the modern age. The rise of antibiotic resistance. As pharmaceutical companies are incentivized to return money to shareholders for a limited product range, innovation is at risk. And in turn, developing new antibiotics takes a low priority. Our insane overuse of antibiotics especially in industrial food farming, magnifies the risk of antibiotic resistance developing. Ironically, it has been estimated three-quarters of antibiotics used are issued to healthy animals, not people. 
we are weakening our greatest weapon against some of the worst diseases and the tool that makes modern surgery possible just so that we can produce cheaper chickens. Worryingly, some strains of cholera are developing resistance mechanisms to antibiotics, as are strains of tuberculosis. Sadly, our relationship with food production can result in pandemics too, as the coronavirus has shown. Laurie Garrett, in her brilliant book, Coming Plague, says, quote, While the human race battles itself, fighting over ever more crowded turf and scarcer resources, the advantage moves to the microbes' court. They are our predators, and they will be victorious if we, homo sapiens, do not learn how to live in a rational global village that affords the microbes fewer opportunities. End quote. Perhaps we are building a new court for a new King Cholera. Okay, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. It has been an immensely long one. So our anniversary special, the third anniversary of the show, will be out at the end of May. And that means there won't be an episode on the 1st of June. I will look forward to seeing everyone soon. Take care. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care and bye for now.